This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell, and this week it's Dan's turn to have a week off where he'll be practicing his swimming in his paddling pool in his garden. But instead, I'm joined by Tom Selby from AJ Bell. Hello. And today we've got loads to cover. So we're going to be looking at big changes afoot for property funds, BP's big dividend cut, why we're all paying less death tax, and why people took less money out of their pensions so far this year. And we've got a small update on Woodford's fund as well. So yes, without Dan here to do the usual market update, Laura and I are going to attempt a mini one without him. Good luck, Laura. Um, so we talked last week about how some companies were bringing their, di- bringing their dividends back, which is obviously good news for investors. But what's happened with BP this week, Laura? Yeah, so you were all sunny and positive while I was off last week, and I'm back. <laughs> um, so... just, just, just hearing your voice makes me sunny and positive, as you well know. <laughs> Um, so the big news this week on the stock market is that the oil giant BP, um, which had been one of the few companies, big companies to maintain its dividend earlier this year, um, it announced this week that it's cutting the dividend in half for this quarter. So the dividend last quarter was 10 and a half cents per share. Um, yeah. and that is now being cut to 5.25 cents per share. But a very strange thing happened when um, the company announced it. The share actually went up. What? What's <laughs> going on? I knew you'd be shocked by that. <laughs> I, had, I, had, I, had, I had done a little bit of research on this beforehand, so I didn't know that was going to happen, but I wanted to give you the reaction that you deserved. I like so the drama. Tell, yeah, it's good, isn't it? So tell me exactly why has this happened then? Because that does sound counterintuitive. So they've cut the dividend by... 50% and the stock market liked it. So the share price went up by about, was it about 7%, 8% or something like that. So what's what's going on? Yeah, it's very weird because what the trend obviously that we've seen so far typically, although obviously mm. there's some exceptions, but typically is that when a company announces its dividends, investors, that it's cutting its dividends, sorry, investors don't like that because it's yeah. less money for them and the share price tends to go down. So BP's ended, it went up dramatically and then it ended the day up about six and a half percent. Yeah. Um, a couple of reasons I think for this. One is that the dividend cut, while a cut and while cutting it in half, it's less aggressive than, for example, Shell, another big oil giant, which yeah. cut its dividend by two thirds. So there were maybe expectations that the dividend was going to be cut and that it was going to be an even bigger cut than was announced. Um, So that's one of the factors. And then the other factor is that the company announced losses for the three months um, Mm. for the period that it was talking about. Um, Losses of almost 17 billion, which is pretty large compared to... Dollars or pounds? In dollars. Uh, 17 billion bucks. Wow, that is incredible. But it's kind of in line with what analysts had expected. Mm. And so off the back of yeah. that, if that's what's already been factored into the share price and, and it's no worse and some people have been thinking it might be worse, then that can cause a share price rise. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So very bad set of results, but the market expected it to be as bad or even worse. And so as a result, you can see a small bump in the share price, despite what looks like a horrendously negative set of numbers. 
And it does take, so we've talked a lot about how income investors have been hit so far mm. this year due to COVID-19. Um, and it does mean that there is now almost 40 billion of dividends that have been either put on hold or cut from UK companies, which is pretty yeah. considering we're only in August. Yeah, I, mean, I've, I've, I think I've mentioned this previously on the podcast. I've had um, conversations with um, with uh, various investors and with with journalists as well, people who um, who had been relying on those dividend payments to provide an income to the extent that I think a lot of people just assumed that those dividends were going to keep getting paid at least at a, at a decent level, and they and they and they weren't factoring in the poss- possibility that dividends could be could be cut and they'd need to find income elsewhere. So I think one of the many, many lessons that investors have learned from this very strange period of time is that dividends, while a very useful and often healthy source of income, particularly for people who are in, in retirement, they're by, by no means guaranteed and they can be cut at any, at any point in time by these companies. Exactly. And I think it has been a bit of a wake up call for some people that just got used to these consistent growing payouts and that dividends were really prioritised by these companies. But there are still companies out there that are, that are still um, high yielding. If it, and mm. obviously It's a bit difficult at the moment because we yields are usually based on forecasts and the forecasts are a little bit more uncertain than usual at the moment mm. obviously um but you've got some examples of things like aviva the insurance company um is on a forecast yield of almost 12 percent mng um is also on 11 and a half percent imperial brands a big company um is on nine percent but then you've also got to take some of these estimates with a bit of a pinch of salt as to whether they're also going to face some cuts or whether those yields seem a bit too good to be true. Okay, so has there been anything else happening in markets in the past week or so? So the other big news I would say is that gold um, is Mm. continuing to rise and it went through the $2,000 per ounce threshold, which is a big big, uh, threshold for it to go through. Um, And it's basically, we've talked a bit about the rise of gold um, on the podcast before, but it's essentially when people are are worried and when they're fearful about future prospects for the for the world or for the country they live in, then they go to safe havens like gold. And so the ongoing fears about the impact of COVID, but also the kind of political worries linked to China mean that lots of people have been going into gold. And so, so far this year, it has risen 28% in dollar terms, which is a yeah. massive growth. Yeah, so good, good for people who are in, invested in gold, but potentially slightly, slightly scary for the, for, the, for the rest of us who are just looking at for a, a little bit of certainty in the world. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, I mean, we mentioned this last time we talked about it, but I, I can't see any immediate certainty coming back anytime soon. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see gold continuing to rise but don't hold me to that because obviously I, will, I, have, I, I, I have i have i have time stamped that prediction and we will be coming back to it in four weeks time <laughs> <laughs> uh i think we made it through that market update unscathed who needs tan exactly yeah it's really really easy i mean two, two of us talking about one company essentially so. <laughs> <laughs> uh so, Tom, you have been looking at figures on pensions, showing that fewer people have been taking money out of their pension so far this year, which is interesting. So I guess is this linked to the, the volatility that we've been talking about and the big falls in markets? 
Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, HMRC produces statistics once a quarter showing the number of people who've flexibly accessed their retirement pot. So that's just people who've taken a taxable income from their pension, either through drawdown or through ad hoc lump sums or UFPLS, as it's called in the jargon. Now, the the reason why we've been waiting with some anticipation, certainly pensions nerds anyway, have been waiting with some anticipation for the second quarter of uh, 2020's uh, flexible access statistics was because it's the right at the heart of COVID-19. So this was when um, the months between April and July, when lockdown hit hardest in the UK, and it's going to give us the, it was always going to give us the, the first indication of exactly how people are reacting to um, to the pandemic and whether it's changed people's behavior in terms of how they access their pension. It's also quite interesting because usually um, April to July is when people uh, access the most amount of money from their retirement pots flexibly because it's a new tax year and so people are taking advantage of a fresh set of income tax allowances. So a big build up there. Um, and the numbers, so 2.3 billion was withdrawn flexibly between April and July this year. That's by 340,000 people. So big numbers as always with pension freedom mm. withdrawal. But interestingly, that number is down 17% from the same period in 2019. Um, that's a pretty dramatic fall then. That's a big fall. We're, see we're seeing fewer people withdrawing versus the previous quarter as well. So that's contrary to the patterns that we've seen since the pension freedoms were introduced in 2015. Um, and we've also seen the average per person withdrawals dropped by a similar percentage, so 18% from £8,200 to £6,700 compared to the second quarter in 2019. Now, I think this is quite encouraging, actually. So one of the, one of the big concerns um, around the pension freedoms and around people who are staying invested and taking an income in drawdown generally um, is the, the risk that people, during, particularly in the early years of retirement, when there's a big hit to um, stock markets, will continue taking big withdrawals out and as a result will risk running out of money early in retirement. Now, we can't, we can't see under the bonnet of these figures, but in terms of the broad picture, it looks like people have reacted to the market downturn and they've reacted either by taking less taxable income out of their funds, so reducing withdrawals, or by pausing withdrawals altogether. So potentially looking to avoid selling down investments at the bottom of the market when COVID-19 hit and just looking to delay their plans in order to wait for the market turbulence to ease a little bit. So I think that's good news. It's good news that lots and lots of people are clearly engaged with their retirements and are sat ready and willing to react when things potentially go in the wrong direction. It's quite a difficult decision for someone to make though, isn't mm. it? Because you can definitely see that the, the sensible decision is not to cash in some of your pension when markets have fallen because you're locking in those losses. Yeah. Um, but then at the end of the day, this is people's income, isn't it? And this is the money that they rely on to, to live on. And so I guess you're effectively deciding that you get a pay cut, aren't you? Absolutely. absolutely. And, there'll, and, there'll, and there'll be some people who simply can't, um, can't afford to reduce 
their withdrawals. And I think that's that's understandable and it's very it's important that people like me and elsewhere don't, don't assume that everybody can simply stop taking an income from their private pot. Um, I think the most important thing is that people don't stick their heads in the sand, that they don't just carry on withdrawing large sums. So when I say a large sum, I think from the age of 65, if you're withdrawing anything more than 4% of the value of your fund, so if you've got a £100,000 fund, if you're taking an income of more than £4,000 £4, a year, then that's potentially going to risk a run out of money in retirement, particularly if market conditions are bad. If you are taking those large sums, then you need to remain engaged and understand the consequences of your decisions. So it I think it would be very easy and, and quite understandable, frankly, for people to carry on uh, withdrawing money from their fund and not want to deal with the stresses and the problems that have been created by COVID-19. And clearly people have got stresses and stresses way beyond the value of their pension pot at this point in time. But the main thing that people need to understand and appreciate is that if you do carry on like that, especially when you look at um, life expectancy statistics in the UK, how long we're likely to live for, the risk is that you'll end up running out of money much sooner than you run out of life. And then you'll have to find a way to plug that gap in your later years. And if you don't have any money to plug that gap in the later years, then in all likelihood, you'll end up falling back on state benefits, which if you look at the state pension, that pays out around 9,000, just over 9,000 pounds a year. So about 175 pounds a week. And so do you think that we might see a big pickup? I mean, I know you mentioned that this mm. first quarter from April, the three months from April, is usually where lots of people make yeah. calls. But do you think that we'll see a pickup again towards the end of the year? Um, if markets have stabilised a bit, people might feel a bit more comfortable taking money Ooh, out of pension. My, right? ch my, my chance to hang myself with a prediction. Um, I, suspect, <laughs> I, su I suspect so, yes. So I think um, a lot of what, what we'll have seen is a lot of people um, will simply have been pausing accessing their pension altogether. So perhaps people who've got other income sources, so not like the people you described who really need that income, but people who can either take income from elsewhere or make slight adjustments to their lifestyle and take the money later. Um, assuming things are calmer in the markets, and clearly we've seen stock markets rebound from their, from their lows of um, kind of March and April. So people may already, since these statistics have been published may have started to access a bit more money from their pensions because they've seen the value of their fund creep back up. Um, obviously, a lot of that will be dependent on what happens to um, the market and to people's funds um, in the coming weeks and months as well. Obviously, uh, the prospect of a, a, second, a second wave of COVID going running through the economy um, kind of hangs over hangs over everything and so if we were to see more lockdowns and if people were to be spooked again then it's possible that markets will go down again and and, and people may still look to pause withdrawing their money but it's all as with everything that we talk about frankly at the moment it is all quite uncertain so it feels like ages ago that Woodford's fund suspended for investors to be able to take their cash out but they're still waiting for the money, aren't they, Laura? And we've had an update on that this week. So tell us a little bit about what's happened. I know, I feel like I've been talking about the Woodford Fund situation <laughs> for years. And I can only imagine how long this process feels for anyone who was yeah. enough to have their money locked up in the fund. Yeah. Um, yeah, so in the past week, we've had another letter released from Link, uh, which mm. is the 
um, organization that's kind of dealing with the winding up of the fund um, with an update for investors on progress of winding up the fund. Um, um, essentially what it said was that investors will get another distribution, so another payout from the fund um, mm. to return some of their money. Um, they've done a deal to sell um, some healthcare stocks that had already been reported. Um, so they kind of did this bulk deal where they sold 19 different assets to the same company okay. um, for a bit over 200 million pounds. Um, and so that coupled with some other cash that they've got will form part of a distribution. So investors will see another little payout. We don't mm. know exactly what that will be um, per unit of the fund or for each investor that we're going to find that out on the 19th of August, how much okay. um, investors will actually get. Um, so that's the good news. The good news mm -hmm. is that the investors are going to get a little bit more of their money back. The bad news is that link, the update also said that there's around 200 million pounds worth of assets that are left to be sold. Um, and Link have said that this is highly illiquid, which in okay. normal terms means pretty difficult to sell. Yeah. Uh, so they've said that it might take longer to sell this last chunk of assets than the whole process has taken so far. So we're oh. now seven months into the start of the from the start of the wind up process. So that means that based on their estimates, we're looking at at least another seven months, which obviously means it's dragging on into next year, which will just be frustrating for investors who want to put this whole saga behind them, get out whatever money they're going to get out, obviously, for most investors or for lots of investors, it's going to be less than they put in. But I imagine lots of them just want to move on from the whole ordeal now. And is, is, is there anything investors in Woodford can do? Or is it just a case of keeping track of the, the various announcements that come from, from Link and others, others associated with getting the money back and, and waiting for that money to arrive? That's probably the most frustrating part is that there is nothing they can do. They've just got to sit and wait for these announcements to come out, which they often won't know when they're going to come out or when they're going to get the next update per se. Um, so 19th of August is the next big date for them, which is when they'll find out how much they're going to get in this next tranche of payout. And then the other interesting thing that Link talked about is that um, they delayed the publication of the report and the accounts for the um, fund, which will give a lot more detail in terms of what's been sold off for what price and, and what kind of deals investors have got in terms of the assets that have been sold off. Um, they've That had been delayed, but it's now going to be published over the next month. So before the end of August, we'll get that. And that will shed a bit more light and give a bit more clarity for investors, but it's obviously not going to do anything in terms of putting extra money in their investment accounts and, and putting the, the, the whole issue behind them. Oh, painful. Seven more months at least. That is, that is interminable, it, particularly if you've got money locked up in there. Really, really not great. I know. I know. It must be frustrating. Mm. Um, but talking about liquidity, one of the big things um, of the past week was potential changes to property funds, which have also previously had liquidity issues. And obviously much of um, the sector is suspended at the moment because of worries about valuations. Um, so these potential changes were announced in the past week by the regulator, the FCA. Uh, so we got Simon Molliker from AJ Bell, um, who is part of the investment team there, uh, back on to explain what the proposals are. And so I started by asking him what the big headlines are from the plans. You're right, Laura, there were some big headlines this week. Um, and really the crux of it was um, about a review into illiquidity um, surrounding property open-ended funds. 
Um, and that was that they are considering uh, doing a consultation on a notice period of 90 to 180 days um, for redemptions. Um, but I think it's really important we actually uh, wind the clock a little bit back here. So, um, you know, firstly, what are property funds? So the open-ended daily dealt property funds, um, they've been around for a while, and they are really uh, funds that are built up of big commercial property units, um, and they're pooled funds um, that investors can uh, invest into, and they're daily dealt. Um, so I think from the outset, probably people have nearly assumed that they're liquid instruments because they are daily dealt. But I think there's been um, a bit of a kind of miscommunication maybe here between uh, the industry and investors in that actually, you know, property is of course a very illiquid asset and doesn't really make a lot of sense in a daily dealt structure. You know, it really is in a case of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole here. Um, during Brexit time um, in 2016, what we did actually see was a raft of suspensions um, in these types of funds. So I think, you know, today it's, the issues are much better understood, which I think are really great because, you know, I think potentially the industry has been a little bit guilty of not um, communicating the message about the illiquidity nature and the fact that they can suspend. Um, so the FCA last year actually had already started a consultation and they came out with the um, idea that they would look to give the standing independent value of the sieve um, a bit more power actually. And if the independent value expressed material uncertainty regarding the value of 20% of the fund, then actually they should automatically suspend. And the, th the feeling behind here was that actually suspension shouldn't really be seen as a dirty term in this world, and that um, investors need to be um, investing in these structures a little bit with their eyes open in that things in a distressed market where you can't sell property, actually one of the routes to um, protecting clients' interest is actually to suspend. Um, so you don't actually end up being the last investor. Um, so there isn't And so that's what we've seen at the moment, isn't it? That, that issue over valuations is the reason that there's currently about, I think it's kind of almost £13 billion worth of investors' money um, in suspended property funds at the moment. And and so what the SCA is talking about here, that wouldn't solve that, that valuation problem, would it? No, no, not at all. It wouldn't solve the valuation problem. Um, there could still be parts of the market that come under stress where a valuer wouldn't be able to put a um, material kind of certainty around the valuation. Um, at the end of the day, the valuers can only value property accurately depending on the transactions um, of the market. So if there is... Um, a strong activity in the market, then the valuers can be quite certain as to a valuation of property because they're seeing lots of evidence around them of similar types of properties being transacted on. Now, clearly, if transactions you know, drop to near zero, then actually it's very, very difficult for them to say what something is worth if there is no transactions. There's no evidence around that. So that issue doesn't necessarily go away. I think what the FCAR are proposing here means that actually, I guess, one from the outset, um, a new investor understands the difficulty um, around the liquidity mismatch issue. So when you invest in, in an open-ended property fund, if it has this notice period, you're kind of upfront, you understand the issues that um, if you want to redeem, you may have to wait um, up to 180 days um, following this proposal. So I think it, it alters perception around the investor. Um, what it really does though, is it gives the property manager more time and more transparency on what liquidity that they require, 
because clearly selling um, a big office uh, lot or a big industrial unit takes takes time and um, much as it does with um, residential sales as we've all lived and breathed um, it's not a quick um, turnaround really so it just gives a bit more transparency and it lets um, the property managers themselves manage the liquidity issue better now that doesn't necessarily say um, we couldn't continue to have suspensions but I think probably suspensions would be fewer and further between. So it's going to be quite a big adjustment for investors though, isn't it? To get used to, whilst I can definitely see that it makes sense for there to be this longer lockup and this longer period between um, you actually getting your money back. It's going to be quite a big re-education for investors who've got so used to being able to trade daily in all funds that they may have to wait up to six months to get their money back. You're right. It's, it's, a, it's a massive change for them, really. Yes, it really is. I mean, I guess the, the first question, really, and the crux of the issue is, is it even suitable for the types of investors that have been investing? If you require daily liquidity, real daily liquidity, then actually property probably isn't the, the correct investment for that investor. Um, so it's a big change. I mean, the other impacts around are actually... How does uh, technology deal with this redemption period? Because clearly it's not, it's not usual that you have a long redemption period in most traditional assets. So will property funds be ISAble? Will you be able to use them in an ISA account going forward? So there's lots of other um, impacts that this actually has. And the other thing I guess that's on my mind today is how do property um, funds transition from going from daily dealt to 90 to 180 days notice period? Um, you know, are they going to suddenly see a raft of people who want their money back before they go on to that notice period? Um, or, you know, that transition, I think, has to be managed very, very carefully. Because ironically, the issue you could have is that there's, if these property funds are indeed open by then, um, if they've unsuspended, um, is actually you could end up causing a whole raft of suspensions again as a whole host of investors that possibly are not now appropriate for funds that have a long redemption period, look to exit. So you could end up having a whole raft of suspensions again in the industry by trying to um, solve the problem. You can actually cause another issue. So there is, whilst it, it on the face of it seems sensible to have a, redemp a long redemption period on an illiquid asset, the transition going to that from where we've come from, I think is, is gonna have to be managed very, very carefully indeed. So true. And that is a thing that I had not thought about, um, that that kind of shift. How do you how do you you can't suddenly one day go to having a six month redemption period, can you? And so that is a no, real challenge you, for the industry. You, you definitely can't. And I've already spoken to a couple of, of fund groups that have property funds and, you know, there isn't. Um, they don't have a clear strategy at the moment. Of course, they're, they're talking about it and they've been thinking about it. But I don't think that, you know, anyone can expect um, any group to have a clear strategy today when this has clearly only just been announced and you know clearly there was a change of rules recently or proposed rules that were going to come into force and now you know there has been a bit of a u-turn um, and I can completely understand why and, and sympathies as to why there's been this u-turn but it obviously is causing confusion among I guess investors and fund groups as to how they should prepare for something like this as well I and mean, I think the obvious route and possibly this is something that um, isn't trying to be encouraged is that they end up being investment trusts or closed-ended vehicles, um, which I think in some sense does make sense. And actually it's the very reason that Germany, Australia, Holland have all banned open-ended 
fund structures in property because really it is very difficult to get it to work and there's lots of challenges in trying to manage this type of structure um, so I'm not surprised we've kind of got here it's just I guess it's still a bit murky as to how we're going to get to um, the notice period point. And it's probably worth um, pointing out again even though we did say at the start is that this is all Part of a consultation so these are proposed plans and at the moment these are suggestions that the regulators putting out and asking the industry and investors what they think about them and they're not the, the final set of rules are they no uh, they're not i mean this consultation period obviously this is this is a new one they've announced but actually a consultation period going in looking into illiquid asset classes has been going on for some time now and it just really demonstrates the challenges we have um, even for the regulator and in the industry as to how you deal with um, the demand for certain asset classes. Um, you could nearly label them alternative asset classes. Um, it's nearly the holy grail of investing in terms of something that acts unlike traditional asset classes. So low correlation traditional asset classes, downside protection. It's nearly you know um, RPI plus type returns. It's the holy grail of investing really, but it is a bit of a false promise in some cases. So it is very difficult. Um, to know how to manage these types of, um, of funds as well. Property hasn't been a particularly popular asset class recently, though, has it? It had quite big outflows before these funds were suspended. So that, does that have any implications? Yeah, I think it definitely does. And I think there's a couple of reasons they're not popular. Um, I mean, we, we've talked about it a lot in our own uh, managed portfolio service because we're, we've been quite negative on property for a while. And, you know, the low interest rate uh, scenario we find ourselves in, uh, the central bank support has really benefited property um, over the last, uh, say, five to even 10 years. So, you know, I'd say there's a lot of areas of property which is quite richly valued, in fact. So I think that's probably the first thing that is maybe on investors' mind. Um, but probably the second one as well is given we've seen a raft of suspension, clearly there's a, you know, a liquidity scare there. And, you know, particularly as we've seen other liquidity events unfold in the industry recently as well. So I think people would be quite um, concerned about liquidity in these. So, you know, I'd factor those two, two points in the fact that, you know, you've been very handsomely rewarded so far for being in property returns, but also liquidity, I think, is starting to um, really show it in terms of flow. So there has been a lot of um, fund flows out of these uh, property funds over the, really the last three or four years. And what you've actually seen is a big shrinkage in the um, sector itself. And I think that's a really important point because actually, if you start to forecast the flow dynamic, if it continues the next three, four years, I think what you end up seeing is possibly you get quite a few funds that are actually then um, under scale. So something like a property fund is probably one asset which really needs scale, particularly if it's a prime property fund, um, which looks to diversify across region, sector and property. I think really those types of funds need around at least a billion pounds worth of fund under assets to be able to diversify themselves and um, to deliver to their objectives. So if you start seeing a lot of property funds that end up on the smaller size, I think actually they run into other problems. So possibly what you end up seeing is that they will um, transition into closed-ended vehicles or indeed they end up um, shutting shop on them as well. Um, that's definitely the trend of, of where we see, see it going so far. Now, possibly the, the redemption notice period maybe changes that, um, but perhaps it doesn't. Excellent. Thanks so much for explaining all of that to us. That's my absolute pleasure, Laura. Thanks for having me again. 
And so finally, Tom, you have found that the UK's most hated tax, inheritance tax, has been paid by fewer people recently. So this is a nice positive note to end on. Why is that? Yes, yes. So, so the most hated tax, but fewer people paying it. So yeah, I save all the nice things um, for for myself and let you take all the all the miserable news, Laura, which I think is fair <laughs> enough. Um, so we had yeah, we had another batch of um, statistics from uh, produced by HMRC and the government uh, a week ago, saying that IHT receipts fell for the first time in a decade um, in 2019-20. So the revenue still made £5.2 billion from IHT, but that was 4% or just over £220 million less than the amount that they made in 2018-19. And so the main reason for this was um, I don't, do, you, do you remember, I think this was, this was announced in a budget, it feels like a lifetime ago now, I think it was 2016-17 or 2015-16, um, uh, George Osborne and David Cameron, the big announcement was to introduce a main residence nil rate band. Um, so it was introduced in 2017-18 and the big um, the big announcement, it was briefed to a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the right-leaning newspapers, was to allow families to pass on homes worth one million pounds um, to their kids or to their loved ones without it ever falling into the IHT net. And so from, from 2017-18, this new band was introduced at 100,000 um, pounds. It then increased by 25 grand each year and has now reached the full level of 175,000 pounds. So in terms of getting to the million, you've got um, the 325,000 pounds IHT allowance that exists per person. Um, so if you've got a couple, then two of those together is 750 grand, and then two 175,000 allowances for your main residence, um, which can be passed to a direct descendant. So if you get two of those, you reach your million pounds. So nothing, I think, I don't think there was anything particularly special um, about why George Osborne and David Cameron decided that a million pounds was the right amount of uh, assets that someone should be able to inherit without paying inheritance tax other than the fact that it's a nice big round number and it sounds like a lot of money. Um, I think one of the interesting things um, about this will be the extent to which it survives post-Covid and uh, it's, it feels like it's almost impossible now to talk about any subject be it investments or personal finance um, or politics without mentioning some sort of COVID link and some sort of lockdown link but the reality is that we're only a few months away from another budget and I almost feel the need to apologize for that it's not my fault but we're going to have a second budget in the <laughs> there's been in, so many I know it is it is interminable and it is difficult for investors as well because you need to keep on top of all this stuff to make sure that you're not paying extra tax that you don't you, you shouldn't otherwise pay so it is important that that you, you stay informed of what's going on but what we we don't know what we're going to see, obviously, in the um, in the autumn budget later this year. But it feels like one of the areas that could potentially be looked at is um, inheritance tax and the amount that people are allowed to inherit. So we've only just reached the point of um, David Cameron and George Osborne's reforms being fully in place so that people can inherit a million pounds. It, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if Rishi Sunak comes and looks at those reforms and decides that they're a bit too generous in a world where the government's racked up 300 billion plus of borrowing in dealing with the the pandemic that we're all going through at the moment so no no clues on that one 
Um, yet we've had the you know the government the government's on a on a, on a separate um, a separate tax on capital gains tax. We I know you talked about that previously on the podcast. They've mm-hmm. um, they've, they've they've launched a review of that tax. There's no specific review of IHT going on at the moment, but it's just one of those uh, one of those announcements that came out last week where you look at that as a uh, a trend and you wonder if the treasury will see that as an opportunity to rake in a bit of extra money at a time when clearly it desperately needs it yeah the timing of it i think is probably a bit mm. unfortunate for people in the if this comes out as they're kind of preparing their budget and, and thinking about potential areas to cut then um it's about unfortunate and they have done quite a lot of reviews into how to simplify inheritance tax mm. years. Yeah. um so the office for tax simplification which is obviously the least sexy name for uh, <laughs> um, had been tasked with doing a lot of work into how to simplify the tax and how to make it easier for people to understand but some of those suggestions might also be taken on board as a way to um, cut costs or raise revenue for the government as well so I feel like uh, nothing is is safe which sounds like a very scary statement to say but but I feel like the government is truly going to be looking at all areas of taxation and seeing what they can get away with changing and what there will be political mood for them to change but also what will generate the most money yeah yeah and it's it's hard it makes it does make things tricky for um for for investors because you you're you're trying to plan your retirement strategy you're trying to plan your investments you're trying to decide how much you put in different assets and um when you've got two budgets essentially in a year and potentially huge change coming down the track at the next one but potentially who knows potentially not huge change we really have no stability um whatsoever and i guess that's understandable given the the circumstances that the government's operating in but if you're um if you're looking to protect as much money as you can from the tax man as most investors are looking to then it's um it's gonna just be a, a, a case of waiting nervously i think and hoping um hoping that any changes aren't too draconian and at least allow um, a bit of time to prepare and plan around them. Okay, thanks a lot for listening this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then leave a review of us wherever you listen to your podcasts and send any suggestions you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. As Laura said um, earlier, I'm not sure if you did say earlier, actually, I will be back again next week for the third oh, i didn't want to put people off <laughs> <laughs> but then but then i will be gone so that ne- <laughs> next next week last one for a bit and then i'll be gone and then i will probably come back at some point in the future so thanks very much for listening and i will see you again next week bye before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of aj bell or shares magazine The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.